Well, good morning. morning. Yep, I feel you. I feel you. My name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we're just going to ask one question. What if, what if we're going about this whole rest thing wrong? What if we're going about this whole rest thing wrong? We are exhausted. We are exhausted because we wrongly believe that if you're not moving up and to the right, you are failing. We're tired. You and I are tired because we live in a world that constantly tells us if you are not moving up and to the right, you are failing. What does that mean, up and to the right? It's not just enough to make budget every year. All right? It's not just enough to be faithful with what you have and not lose anything. You've got to be gaining, growing, right? If it's not growing, it's dying. And that applies to the business world for sure, but it bleeds into every area of our lives. It's not enough to be a faithful parent who gets your kids to school on time, fed, and dressed. You've got to have outfits that are Instagram ready at all times. You've got to take vacations that are Instagram ready that say you have your finger on the pulse of culture. Like you're not, you're not vacationing in these classless places, but you're not vacationing in a place where it shows you're totally out of touch, right? So it's not like you're like, I, don't, I know what caviar is, and you can still say eat the rich, right? You did that vacation, right? We gotta always be moving up and to the right. It's not enough to be a university professor who cares about her students, who wants to see her, her students thrive academically, to really just take hold of the material, but not just to grow intellectually, but also be a good citizen and be a whole person. That's not enough. You've got to publish or perish. And it's also not enough to get published at the University of Kansas. Ugh. What happened? Why couldn't you get Harvard? Kansas? Ah! That's still a rivalry, huh? Well, at least in this half of the room. And it's not enough to get older and to be kind as an elderly citizen. You've got to have a six-pack into your 60s, and you've got to have no lower back pain, and you've got to just be ready to tell everyone about all the pumpkin seeds you're eating. We've always got to be moving up and to the right. If we're not moving up and to the right, we're failing. And the problem with that is we're all exhausted. Because not only do we have to be moving up and to the right, we've also li- we also live in a world where World War III is looming right around the corner, it feels like, all the time. Inflation, it, uh, where's, you know, when's it going to stop? And then 2024 is right around the corner. And based on the news now, it doesn't seem like we're going to turn a corner and all of a sudden political rhetoric is going to get nice. It's like, oh, it's coming. It's coming. Some of you have had a reprieve. You forgot 2024 is around the corner, but it is, it is not. There, that's an option. That's an option. Come, Lord Jesus. In the middle of all this, we're exhausted people and we're seeking rest. But what if, what if, 
we're going about this rest business wrong. What if the very pursuit of rest can make us more tired? We have been in a series where we're looking at the beginning of the Bible. We're in Genesis 1. And the Genesis, Genesis 1 stands on its own as a story with a beginning and an end. Right? It starts with, in the beginning, okay? And it ends with, and God finished. That's a story, a beginning and an end. It tells a story, and it's really helpful for us to know the end of the story. The end of the story helps you navigate everything in the middle. And the end of the story is God resting. So the story starts with chaos, the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos. Remember, and that's God's care. He breathes over the chaos and transforms it. And then the story ends with him resting from his work. And we go, yeah, that's nice. That's where we're headed. That's what we want. And this morning, I want to ask the question, what if we're coming about this whole idea of rest wrong? How you think the story ends is going to impact your, your journey toward that destination. And if you think the story ends with margaritas by the pool and kids who don't need anything and you've hit 65 and there's no more demands on your time, when you navigate a chaotic world, you're going to be thoroughly disappointed. What if rest isn't what we think it is? What if we're not moving toward a future where you get to grab your favorite novel, sit under a tree, and just look at the clouds? That looks like a rabbit. That looks like a tiger eating a jayhawk. This is so great. The kids feed themselves. My mother-in-law loves me. How great is this? What if there's another way to go about it? What if that's not the story the Bible tells? Now, next week, we're going to talk about how to incorporate rest into our lives. All right, so please do not misunderstand me. I'm not trying to belittle mental health. I'm not trying to belittle healthy, healthy rhythms in life. All right? You need to unplug. You need to grab your favorite book, sit under a tree, and just be. But that's not what rest is in totality. That's not what rest is in totality. And my concern for us is if we think that's what rest is in totality, we are going to slowly siphon gas out of our tanks. We're going to lose energy. And when we encounter chaos, we're just going to constantly be like, what am I doing wrong? I was wired for rest. This isn't rest. This is a problem. Get it out of here. What if we're coming about this whole rest thing wrong? The creation story starts with a God who's hovering over the chaos and ends with a God who rests. And the invitation for us as people is not to worship and pursue rest. The invitation for us is to worship and pursue the God of rest. And that does not mean what we think it means.
It's an invitation into a totally new way of being, which on the one hand requires nothing of us, and on the other hand requires everything from us. And that tension is where we're invited to live. So, if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 2. We are on page 3 of the Maroon Seatback Bibles. Last week we were on page 1. This week we're on page 3. We are cooking with Crisco, baby. Genesis chapter 2. You may be thinking, wait a minute. I thought you said Genesis chapter 1 is like the whole creation account. Yeah, so the chapter breaks are not inspired, and I don't know why they put the chapter break here. They came around in like the 1200s, okay? So way after all the original audiences. And the reason we have chapters is because it'd be very confusing if I was like, turn to Genesis about this far in, right? It's just nice so we can all know where we're going. But the Genesis 1 really refers to Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. So that's where we're going to be, Genesis 2-1 through 3. How do we know that? Because it starts with, in the beginning, and then Genesis 2 ends with, God completed, God finished. Okay? You see how nice that is? There's a start and an end. Wow! Many theologians believe that Genesis 1 has the whole story of the Bible right in it in seed form. It colors everything. So Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating he had done. This is the word of the Lord. God. God, when we allow ourselves to be honest, we know we're tired. God, the chaos that we feel feels relentless. God, the relationships that we have to navigate aren't always peaceful. We're exhausted and we need rest. So God, show us what that looks like. What does it look like to worship the God of rest? Ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. I made a mistake last week. I misspoke. I told you something that wasn't true. And there's no plot twist there. That's just a real sentence, okay? Now, I I was pondering this on Monday, like freaking out. Oh, man, I said this. That's not true. What in the world am I supposed to do with that? What I'm proposing to you today is that when we think about rest as margaritas by the pool, total peace, no conflict, no chaos... And then we think about disruptions to that rest. If we think about rest like that, and then we think about chaos that we enter into, how do you handle that chaos, right? If I'm created to be somebody who's never supposed to experience conflict, 
That's how the story ends, right? I'm created to be someone who's always at peace. Everything works out. There's nothing hard. Something hard happened. I said something that wasn't true. Ugh. What do I do? Do I tell people that and risk you know, losing credibility? Do I just brush ahead and hope nobody noticed? How do I navigate that? But if I have the idea of rest that Genesis gives me, I can navigate this situation we find ourselves in a little differently. Let me tell you the mistake I made. I talked about last week, Genesis 1-1 has seven words. We're totally kosher so far. All right? In Hebrew, Bereshit, bara Elohim, et HaShemayim, et Haaretz. That's seven words. And I said, seven is all over the Genesis 1 story. It's a big deal, right out of the gate. And then I said, the center of that seven is God. So the story's about him. As soon as that came out of my mouth, I was like, that, ah, bah, bah, bah. I know, I'm going to throw him under the bus now, I know my Hebrew professor, Dr. Stephen Dempster, said that, but that's totally wrong, Dr. Stephen Dempster, that God is the center of that. Because think about it, if you have seven, you should have three words on each side. That's where seven comes from. But Elohim, God, is word number three. That means there's two words over here and five words over here, not the center. And I always like, I don't get that. Because the, the, the middle word is actually, it's not a word in English. It's not translatable. It's the word et. Can you say that? Okay, et, for all you grammar teachers out there, you're welcome. Someone was listening. Your work is not in vain. Et just marks the direct object. What's the direct object? Craig threw a ball. Ball is the direct object. Ball did not throw Craig. Craig threw the ball. The ball is the direct object. So the, the writer of Genesis is saying God created heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth did not create God. It's just a marker, and it's the middle. And you're like, why are you talking about this? This has no relevance for my life. Yes, it does. Because it's an Easter egg to this whole issue of why we see rest wrong. So before we explain the Easter egg... I have to explain what Easter eggs are. Now, in movie, television, and film, astute viewers of movies, television, and film will see clues about the movie, that they, television or film they are watching within the movie. And it's a clue called an Easter egg that's like, whoa, and then movie nerds come together like, did you see this happening in this movie? I, from this platform, poo-poo a lot on Marvel movies. And I, I, I know that that bothers you because that's like one of the biggest pieces of feedback I get. What's wrong with this movie? What's wrong with this movie? And I'm sorry, okay? I'm just sorry. <clears throat> but in my mind, the greatest superhero movie ever, if you exclude Christopher Reeve's Superman films, the greatest superhero movie ever is the 2008 classic, The Dark Knight. Can I get a witness? Yes. All right. Now, we're going to explain Easter eggs by explaining the 2008 classic, The Dark Knight. You may remember that Batman is, you know, he's doing his thing. And there's this young district attorney called Harvey Dent, who seems like he cares about truth and justice, and he's going to hold criminals to account. But who does Harvey Dent become? Two-Face. Two now, throughout the movie, he is not Two-Face. 
He is Harvey Dent, and he's fighting for justice. And you're like, wow, when's this going to go south? Early in the movie, Batman's partner in fighting crime is Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Gordon sits down to talk to Harvey Dent as Harvey Dent, and they're having this conversation. And then there's an Easter egg. If you look behind Commissioner Gordon, you will see this Easter egg. He's in Harvey Dent's office talking to Harvey Dent. And if you look over his left shoulder, you will see that the books are filed orderly and neatly. And if you look over his right shoulder, you will see that the case files are chaotic and messy. Why? Because Harvey Dent's two-face. So it's... Oh, right. Thank you. I heard it. Yes. See, it's so much better than Marvel. So it flavors that meeting. You think, well, here's Commissioner Gordon talking to this, you know, pursuer of justice and truth. Mm-mm. He's just not yet the madman. And you're like, whoa. It's an Easter egg. And movie nerds everywhere are like, I saw it. Did you see it? And you're like, oh, I was just watching a movie, man. The Bible is full of Easter eggs. And part of the problem is we just don't know how to see them because it's to a different culture. But also, wackadoodles read the Bible and find their own Easter eggs. So I grew up, I grew up, and in the neighborhood I grew up, there was a, like a traffic sign, and it was metal, and below it was another metal-looking traffic sign that said, Jesus is coming back in March 30th, 1988. And it looked like the city put it up. I grew up in the 90s. And this person just did the math from the Bible. It's like, see, Jesus is coming back March 30th, 1988. And it was like 1995, all right? Some people read the Bible in wackadoodle ways, and they find all these connections. Like, look at all these connections. Isn't that amazing? You're like, I don't know. You're kind of scary. But Genesis 1 is full of Easter eggs. And if we let ourselves look at them, we're like, whoa, look at it. So the number seven is a massive Easter egg. Let's just think about it for a second. How many days of creation are there? There's seven days of creation. Seven times the God of creation looks out at his creation and says, it is good. In Genesis 1-1, there are seven words. The two lines that come after Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2 each have seven words. The verses we just read have three lines, each of them containing seven words. Seven, 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 seven. Right, well, maybe that's just a coincidence, right? Maybe, and maybe this is just a coincidence too. Or maybe it's intention. It's the author trying to get our attention to say the point of creation is the seventh day. It's when God rests. That's what we're moving toward. Now, back to my mistake. I said that the, the whole story, the center of those seven words was God. That's not the center. The center is that Hebrew word et, which is made up of two Hebrew letters, Aleph and Tau. Aleph is the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Tau is the last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So the beginning of the story has a centerpiece that says the beginning and the end. You're like, you're making this up. Maybe, but when Jesus shows up to John the Revelator, what does he say to him? I am the Alpha and the what? That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. This, this story is saying, hey, 
We have the end in mind. We are moving toward rest. We are moving away from chaos to rest. Jesus shows up and says, that's been the plan all along. Back in Genesis 1-1, we said, the beginning has an end in mind, and here I am, baby. Alpha and Omega. Now, what you think about that end colors everything. If you really think you are headed toward a conflict-free mojitos and me time, that shapes what you do from now till then. When the scripture says God rests, what does that mean? Ever thought about that? What does it mean for God to rest? It does not mean he just took his foot off the gas and was like, ah, that was a lot of work. I can't wait to get to another six days of this so I can get back to this day. Whew, this is great. I was just wired to have no responsibilities. That is not the case. You're thinking, wait a second. Isn't this where the whole idea of Sabbath comes from? Isn't there a day of the week where everybody does nothing because of this? You are correct. And that is next week. We're going to talk about how to incorporate rest into our lives in real practical ways. So come back next week. But for now, I just want, you, I just want to point something out to you. All right, we're students of the Bible. We don't write the mail. We just deliver the mail, okay? Pay attention to how many commands you hear in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. A command is like telling you to do something, okay? How many times do you hear the God of Scripture telling you to do something, all right? Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast, or in all the vast array with them. Any commands? So far, so good. No commands. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Any commands? Nothing, all right? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's the next verse. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Any commands? No commands. The command to rest doesn't come for another 70 chapters. Seven zero. We're going to talk about it. We're not trying to minimize you. We should be people who, you know, we live in a chaotic world. We got to take our hands and just say, hey, God, you run the world. But rest is not fundamentally about, hey, I'm free from responsibility. I'm free from work. Rest is something totally different. Now, this... Remember, the Bible was written in a cultural context. And when we study the creation stories from other creation accounts, we see all the other gods were chasing after rest. So remember last week we talked about how gods over the surface of the deep. There was a god that the Egyptians, the Mesopotamians believed, lived in that deep called Tiamat. Tiamat is complaining to this god Apsu about lower gods. And here's what Tiamat says. They, the lower gods, have become grievous to me. By day, I cannot rest. By night, I cannot sleep. I shall abolish their ways and disperse them. Let peace prevail so that we can sleep. Remember, the God of Scripture is trying to say, Yahweh Elohim is different from the other gods. What do the other gods do? Creation is a nuisance. It bothers them. And so they're trying to like just get off my back so I can sleep. The God of Scripture, though, has a totally different posture toward how he rests. And and if you're looking for just a word that describes how the God of Scripture rests, we could use the word nests. 
nesting, when my wife and I were getting ready for my wife to have the baby. I didn't have the baby. You know, my wife and I had a baby. I didn't. I really, I just, my one job was to not pass out. That's what they told me. Just don't pass out, sir. Got it. All right? I really didn't do anything. When we were experiencing that, before that, everyone kept coming to me with this weird question. Oh, is your wife nesting? I'd never heard that before. Like, what does that mean, nesting? What is that? Oh, you know, are you nesting? Huh? Nesting has with it this idea of preparing a place that you can live and just relax, a place that's safe, a place of security, a place where you just go, all right, all is well. She still has to have the baby, which I don't know if you know, this is a lot of work. The God of Scripture creates, and his last act of creation is to settle into that creation in a way that says, this is secure, this is safe, I'm here. The invitation to rest is not an invitation to pursue a life where we have no responsibility. The invitation to rest is to worship the God who provides for us. He's in a place of security. He's in a place of equilibrium. He's in a place where everything is as it should be. And we can come to him saying, provide, care for me. Now, back to my illustration of how I went wrong. If the goal is for me to not experience any conflict, I'm just going to be like, well, conflict is bad. How do we get through this? But if the goal is to say, God wants to provide for me in this moment, what are some fears I have? I have fears, man. People are going to not respect me. You know, I misspoke. People are going to think I'm super nerdy because we have to explain like the Hebrew alphabet. Oh my gosh, this is not going to be good. But then I'm like, God, you're a God who provides. So I can, I can show up trusting you're going you're gonna to meet the needs that I have in this moment. I don't know what those needs even are just yet, but I'm trusting you're secure. You're safe. When we think about God meeting our needs, our minds go to so many places. Our minds can naturally go to finances. 65 is coming, and you just learned about compounding interest. Uh-oh, I wasted my 20s and 30s. If I had just been saving just a little bit, man, I'd be headed into a bright future. But instead, I bought cars and clothes, and I don't even know what else, and now I'm really anxious. Am I going to be able to, is Social Security going to be there? Is it going to be gone? I don't know. Let's blame people and fight about it. I'm anxious. I used to wake up in the morning ready to take on the day, grab a cup of coffee, and boom, ready to go. Now my lower back really hurts. Is this the beginning of an end, or is this just like a weird thing in my back? Is this cancer? I saw a movie where someone had lower back, and it was can- pain, and it was cancer. Real needs. My kids don't like me. That's not restful. I woke up one morning and thought I had been in busy season after busy season. I was really popular in college. I was the person that everybody came to to share their story. Then, you know, kids came, career came. I just always told myself, well, it's a busy season, it's a busy season. Now things have calmed down, and I realize I have no friends. I'm lonely. How does God provide? If rest is the goal, meaning no conflict, no chaos, 
These are all threats to our rest. But if rest is saying, God, you are safe, you are secure. My world is not safe, my world is not secure. How are you going to provide relationships? How are, who are the companions you're going to provide? God, how are you going to provide for my financial needs? How, how are you going to do that? I'm not moving up and to the right. I'm, I'm just asking, how are you going to provide? And when we have that as our posture, here's what we learn. God is never late, but he is not on our timetable. God is never late. He will provide, but he is not on our timetable. The invitation to rest is about a new posture to trust the God who provides, and he seems to be totally chill and fine when I am not. So on the one hand, it requires nothing of us. We go to one who provides. But on the other hand, he doesn't provide in a way that looks like he's providing and it's creating anxiety. This is a new way of being in the world. How do we live there? How do we live in a place where we're pursuing rest? We're pursuing God's provision. David Benner, he's a spiritual director, wrote a fantastic little book called Surrender to Love. And in this book, he tells the story of taking a bunch of spiritual directors to a conference in the Philippines. And these spiritual directors had to have been from the Midwest because none of them knew how to swim. Thank you. I know. It's just easy. It's just low-hanging fruit. I'm sorry. So I know there's some of you in here who are on a swim team. I know. I see you. But, but they go to the ocean, and these spiritual directors who don't know how to swim are terrified because they're going to go snorkeling. And I don't know if you've ever been like on like a snorkeling trip overseas. There can sometimes be this case where overseas tour guides have a posture of like, I'm going to make you do this because you're just going to fly away and I'm not really all that concerned. And what are you going to do? We're out in the middle of the ocean. Who are you going to call? You can't sue me. Right? So this very pushy scuba or snorkeling instructor is like, get in the water. And these folks who can't swim are terrified. Like, uh, it's deep. Are there sharks? Are there sharks here, right? Get in the water. So they get in the water, and they do what people who don't know how to swim do. They just cling to the boat. Now, if you've spent any time near water, is that a good idea or a bad idea? It's a bad idea. One, because the motor's, you know, you could slice into the motor, and because waves just mash you into the boat. So imagine all these spiritual directors, these like people with tender hearts, wanting to love on people. They're just clinging to the side of a boat while waves just smash them into that boat. And there's a guy yelling at them, let go! And they're like, no! David, seeing this, just steps in and says, hey guys, just let go. They had, there was a level of trust with David. They had spent a whole week with him talking about spiritual care, so they let go. And what did they learn? They float. They float. Everything and nothing. That's the tension we're invited to live to when we worship the God who rests. He's a God who requires nothing from us. Just trust. But learning to do that 
costs us everything. We have a way of navigating the world. We have a way of providing for needs. We learned we live in a scarce world. There's a scarcity of resources. If I don't care for myself, who will? And the God of rest says, hey, actually, folks, I've created the world. I've wired the world so that everything points to the fact that I'm the God who provides. I'm the God who's in a place of security, and I'll take care of your needs. But we're not going to meet budget. Let's freak out. I'll provide. It's not an invitation to just take your hands off the wheels. Because what happens after this in Genesis 2? God puts him in a garden to what? To work and to keep it. Right? The invitation, it's not like, man, I have all this ambition. I have stuff I want to get done. How do I do that? Well, if you're a Christian, we're moving toward rest. So just bury all that ambition. Bury all that desire. We're, gonna, we're just going to relax here, folks. No, we're not moving to a future with the cessation of activity. We're moving toward a future where we work, where we move, where we navigate with a God who's promised to provide. A God who's promised to provide finances. That's not health and wealth to say that, by the way. A God who's promised to provide relationships. A God who's promised to provide what we need when we need it. And the hard thing is learning he knows our needs better than we do. That's the hardest lesson to learn. God, I have a need and I need it now. And he's like, I know, I see you, I'll provide. I said, I think now, maybe you have a loose definition of now, God, but I didn't, like, like, aura. I hear you. I'll provide. How do, we, how do we live in this tension? How do we navigate living in a world where it's an invitation that costs us nothing and everything at the same time? Meditation. Meditation. What does it mean? What are, what's the invitation to meditate on this story? Work and rest. God works and he rests. God rests and he commissions us to work. God, I, that's tension. And we just meditate on that tension. We think about it. We don't analyze it. Well, I, do I really think this? I don't know what this really means. We receive it and we say, help me work out the tension in my life. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Maybe it's not. It's not Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, we receive scripture like Mary did. We don't analyze, we digest. We let it come into us and we say, what do you need from me? What are you saying to me? What questions do you have for me? We receive. Worshiping the God of rest says, God, what are the ways I'm not resting? Where am I trusting my own resources? How are you the alpha and the omega, the one who knows the end, who's gone ahead of me, who is secure, who's got me? How can that change the course I'm on? That is way better than reading Catcher in the Rye under your favorite tree and watching clouds go by. That's an invitation to be in the world, to take risks, to step out and go places you never thought you would take. Because just like 
It's, it's no accident that God thinks of the creation as a story. Where's your story going? Is your story going to, to land in a place where I kept myself safe? I minimized risk and I, I, I maximized profit. We made it up and to the right. Or is your story going, God, I trusted you to provide. We did wild things, but you were there. And you did not provide on my timetable. But you provided on your timetable, and I met you in the process. Meditation is how we prepare for those moments. Because nothing can prepare you for those. Nothing. But when we sit with the God who is the God of rest, he tells you, hey, whatever's coming your way, whatever chaos is coming, the end, the end is when you get to sit with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He says, I was with you the whole way. We're not alone. He'll carry us. He'll carry us to the end, and even at the end, he'll carry us. Father, help us to respond. Help us to respond to the invitation to worship the God of rest with open hands. Father, it's hard to trust. It's hard to float. God, we've learned to navigate this world. This world with looming World War III, with inflation, and with contentious elections. But Father, remind us you're with us, and even at the end, you're with us. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.